Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to Oil & Gas Global Network's Elevate Podcast. My name is Eric Johnson. Welcome to the show. As always, joined by my co-host, Sean McCoy. How you doing, my friend? Doing great. How about you? Living the dream as always. Well, I'm excited about today's episode. We got a talking point segment with James Quinn. We have a little discussion around sodium ion batteries versus lithium ion batteries. Yeah, and then we're going to jump into the Top Coder Open as our case study, coming from the company Top Coder and Clinton Bonner, their vice president of marketing. Really an interesting case study about open source software and how it's innovating throughout the oil and gas industry and others. And then we're going to get some real innovative insight from Richard Copsey from ExxonMobil in that segment. Sounds awesome. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Talking Point segment of the podcast. Eric, when I say batteries, especially around industrial applications and kind of in our world, kind of what comes to mind? Well, you know, honestly, for me, my eyes probably glaze over a little <laughs> bit. But, you know, you and I have talked a lot about energy storage and that being part of the kind of one of the missing links to some of the solution to the energy transition question. Right. And so figuring out that path is, you know, whether you're try trying to make renewables viable, whether you're trying to improve what can happen on the industrial application side, like you're talking about, I think it's a key part of our path forward. Well, I also think that we have a lot of uh, assumptions, a lot of preconceived notions For around sure. that kind of thing, you know, especially around the negativity side, or maybe it's, it's, you know, there's too much out there. There's not enough battery storage there. It won't get there. And so it, it, it begs that question. And I was actually listening. One of our former guests, uh, Ulubumi Olajade has a the energy talk podcast. And like I, like I do, I was listening to it and he had a gentleman on there by the name of James Quinn from a company called Faraday, And they were talking about sodium ion batteries versus lithium ion batteries. And one of the big issues is we all know from lithium on all levels, difficult to transfer, there's shipping issues, there's you know, physical safety issues, capacity right. issues, material issues around how you, know, how you get it, where you get it from and that kind of thing. And so as I was listening to James talk, it actually opened my mind. And as we've been discussing a little bit with him before the show as well, some of that nuance that we don't know, what is going on in that world? What's some of the history? What is going on? And if we ignore it, I think that we do so at our, at our collective peril, if you will. So in true fashion, we reached out to James and said, hey, would you like to come on and kind of help throw, you know, give us some knowledge, tell us what's going on, give us your perspective. We've gotten to know him a bit and have really enjoyed it. And so to tell you a little about James as he comes on the show, he's the chief executive officer of Ferritin. He is an international technology executive and entrepreneur with a background in both publicly traded and private companies. He has significant experience with fundraising and mergers and acquisitions. A proven technology products executive with over 25 years of broad-based experience in systems and services, including product development of leading-edge technologies through global supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, and licensing. And Faraday is headquartered in Sheffield, England with a team in Oxford. And so from all the way 
overseas and with our from our friends in Europe. James joins us. And so thank you, James, for coming on and talking to us. Hey, great. Thank, thanks for the opportunity. I really do appreciate it. It's interesting about your thoughts on batteries. I think most people don't think about batteries until it's empty, right? It's sort of uh, <laughs> it's kind of hidden in the background. And usually it's the first thing my kids say to me when they jump in the car is, I need to charge my phone, right? So I think oh, that's the first. Yeah, mine, mine is plugged in right now. So <laughs> <laughs> don't, judge, don't judge us, but yeah, no, it's... Exactly. You're right, though. And so, so tell us, uh, maybe that's a great place to start. Kind of give us an idea. What are, you know, when we talk about batteries and stuff like that, I mean, how do you start this conversation out, especially with people who may have a cursory understanding, but maybe not an intense understanding of it? I think we all know, you know, we're all familiar with batteries in our, our everyday life. But if you really think about it, especially rechargeable batteries, and that's really what we're talking about, is it's relatively new. The lithium cobalt oxide, the first technology came out of Oxford University, and and that was licensed to Sony. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it is a relatively newer technology, and those first products came into the market in the Sony camcorder in the early 90s. So it's not like it's been around for for, a length of time in that respect. I think what we all think about is we're all familiar with the lead acid battery that's sitting in your car. And I think we're, you know, having to jump start it in the winter or whatever you, you need to do. But I think, you know, lithium ion batteries have been getting the sexy attention in all the headlines recently. But what people don't realize is really 70% of the market is still lead acid batteries in terms of volume. It's a, the significant amount of megawatts per year, which is produced worldwide. It's still the largest market. But lithium-ion technology is growing up and, and, and advancing quite quite quickly in terms of volume. It's more expensive, it's a higher performance, and it's growing at a pretty good compound annual growth rate. I think the challenge with lithium-ion technology is, let's say, the infrastructure, the raw materials for that. And sodium-ion technology, I think, was a technology that was overlooked by chemists and battery people for a while. I think it was thought to have, you know, where it sits on the periodic table that it was perceived to be heavier than lithium ion. It was perceived to be a low energy density, which is important in batteries. And I think it was really kind of overlooked. And when Ferradian got involved in sodium ion technology, it was really a white space. There was nobody really doing anything in that space. And that became really a massive opportunity for Ferradian because we were able to go in there and carve out that IP around that space and, and really develop the technology. We've been working on it for 10 years. It takes, takes about 10 years to develop a new battery chemistry to bring it into the market. And sodium ion has a number of unique aspects to it, which is, makes it quite, quite interesting and in many ways preferential over alternatives such as lithium iron or lead acid. And that is that the raw materials are essentially abundant. Sodium is the sixth most abundant element on the planet. It's widely available and virtually unlimited. And it's not locked into any particular geographic location. As you see in in lithium ion, for example, if it's using cobalt that's heavily dominated in the Congo, it's really there's really only one or two places in the world where you can can get that. And so sodium ion presents that opportunity. And because it's not using these expensive raw materials, it's a lower cost technology, which is really important as you scale and to make it more widely adopted. And sodium ion has one other unique advantage to it, and that is it's able to discharge down to zero volts. 
So unlike lithium ion, as you know, if you have to reluctantly check in a bag when you're on a plane and you have to take out your batteries, your lithium ion batteries, because they become unstable in temperatures or, or with overcharging or anything. And nobody wants to be on a plane with a battery fire. And sodium ion batteries can be discharged down to zero volts. You can ship them, install them, maintain them. And, and that's a very unique feature to sodium ion technology. And Ferradian also has some, some IP and a patent on that. So that's just a, a little bit of a background between, you know, sodium ion and where it kind of fits between, you know, lead acid and lithium ion technology. So when we think about lithium, we think about, again, our iPhones and we think about the Tesla. And when we think about the sodium ion option, what's the best kind of application? What do you, what do you think the best uses for that particular technology as we think about the various places where we're using batteries and, and what makes sense for us? I think, you know, sodium ion has a broad range of applications. It's We definitely look at storage applications. We see that energy storage market, residential, commercial, industrial, even utility scale is a very suitable technology for sodium ion technology. The other area is what we call reserve power. So these are things like, you know, 5G or telecom, for example, to have reserve power applications. It's also for cable. You know, it's interesting with cable, I learned that the batteries are put up on poles, not because they perform better up there, but because people steal them. And so they put them up on poles, which means they're exposed to the harsh elements and sodium ion has better operating temperature performance than lead acid or lithium ion technology. So it makes them more suitable. Also for data centers, that's another area, which is, you know, for Facebook and those types of warehouses and so forth to be able to do those data. The other area, I think, which is mobility, you know, we haven't focused on passenger vehicles initially. It's typically been a long design cycle for passenger vehicles. There's a lot of big players in that space. And as a startup, it's it's probably not the best place to get started, although we think the technology has legs in that space. When we say mobility, we're really looking at things like forklifts, material handling, three-wheelers in India. That's a, a lot of interest in the three-wheeler market to go electric in India. And then also we're looking at electric buses and trucks and so forth. And then at some point, we think the technology has legs to be very competitive also into passenger EVs. So to that, like you said, the initial the low-hanging fruit for the application is more on your, you know, your large capacity kind of, I guess, grid type application. Is that right? And if not, where do you see the sodium ion and, and you guys playing, I guess, first in that, in that market? We're, we're playing in all areas. We're working with electric buses. We're working in residential energy storage. We're talking to utility companies right now. So it really is a broad range of applications. I would say the low-hanging fruit would be the storage applications, to be quite frank. They're less demanding applications. They're typically considered second life for passenger EV batteries, for example. So after you know it serves its purpose in a car, then you can use it for backup energy storage, for example, keep the lights on if the electricity goes out somewhere. So I think the energy storage does tend to be less demanding application than, say, say a passenger EV. One of the things I want to follow up on, we talked about this a little bit, Earlier in the opening, Sean, was this idea of, you know, what does the oil and gas community think about battery technology? Where is battery technology? Is that decades and decades away and therefore we're going to just keep, you know, drilling and drilling and drilling? Or is this actually something where we're going to see some real breakthroughs in the near future where, you know, renewables can store massive amounts of electricity when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, that kind of deal, right? So, James, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, kind of where we are just in the development cycle, how that's going to impact you know, the electrification of the world, so to speak. 
Yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about this previously. I, th- I think, you know, maybe the best way to do that is to kind of take a little bit of a step back and, and get a perspective of how we got here and, and, you know, where we're going here to get a little bit of a baseline for that. I think, you know, the, the battery was originally invented by Alessandro Volta in, in Italy, in Lago di Como, Italy, Lake Como. And it was actually, you know, first time it was proven that electricity can be generated chemically rather than only by living beings, right? So it was quite interesting. And at the time, they thought they can actually use electricity to reanimate dead people. So they were, you know, it became a bit of a carnival thing where they would apply electricity and the guy's, you know, eyelids would open again or his arm would move or something like that. It became a bit of a I think there was, I think there was a book about that, right? <laughs> it, it, it probably is. I was in Lago di Como this summer and I took my kids to the Volta Museum in, in Lake Como and you know to their relief it was closed for renovation but uh, i think it's definitely an interesting thing and you know really not much has happened with batteries for for quite a long period of time if we fast forward into the us and we think about you know john d rockefeller is probably one of the most famous oil guys was certainly perceived to be probably the most richest man in the world ever you know, he saw oil as gambling, basically, in the beginning. You know, you dig a hole, nothing happens. Dig a hole, nothing happens. And then, you know, you lose half of it before you can cap it off. And But he saw oil refining as quite interesting because the refinement of oil created kerosene. And John Rockefeller built a significant business on kerosene, which was replacing turpentine and alcohol for lighting people's homes at the time and built a very, very big business on that. And then comes along this other startup company, which was funded by a guy named J.P. Morgan. This was Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison put the first you know, home, J.P. Morgan's home, under electricity and was able to bring electricity. And, and as you know, they built Edison Electric in New York City and what a lot of people don't realize around the late 1800s, most of the cars in New York City were electric. There were far more electric cars in New York City than any gas-powered cars at the time because electricity was quite available in the, in the city. I think the challenge of the electricity at the time was how do you get it outside of the city and move it out into the countryside? And there was, you know, the big competition between Tesla with AC, alternating current, and Edison with direct current. And you know, a lot of, of this going on back and forth. In the meantime, another startup comes along, a guy named Henry Ford, and, and he basically develops a low cost for the masses production internal combustion engine car, right? And starts to be able to bring that out. So I think there was a couple of things there. And, and what happened was it became very difficult in, to develop the infrastructure to get electricity out to the countryside you had, it was a lot easier to, you know, cars initially were, you know, hand crank on them. So the invention of the electric starter made gas power cars, you know, certainly more more attractive rather than sitting out there in the rain or the snow and cranking it. You can go in the car and, and start it up with an electric starter. I think Rockefeller was quite concerned about, you know, what happens to his business for lighting homes with kerosene. And he was quite innovative and saw the refinement of kerosene is gasoline and was able to see how very quickly you can go out and put gas stations and put, you know, put a tank in the ground and, and create gas stations for people and bring that out to the countryside. And, and in the end, that's why gas-powered cars became the main standard, because the infrastructure was available, the electric starter and having the gas available out further outside of the cities. So I think it was quite interesting. And that's been the business for quite a long time. And 
you know, I think one of my favorite quotes from Henry Ford is he said, if I asked my customers what they want, they would have said faster horses, right? And and I think <laughs> Rockefeller was quite innovative in thinking about the process and the technology and making it available to the people. And, and I think that was quite interesting. And if you look at today, you know, I mean, well, then you had Rockefeller who became the first monopoly to be broken up by the U.S. government from Standard Oil which is now today's companies like Exxon and Chevron and so forth are remnants of the breakup of Standard Oil among some other companies. And, but Exxon and Chevron are probably the most known. And today, if you look what's happening now, so gasoline's dominated the, the market for, for years and years. There's been a lot of geopolitical wars for it over oil worldwide because, you know, we, we need our transportation and it's become really, really critical to us. And all these rules now, if you look in California, talking about only electric vehicles, you know, is being sold by 2030. The UK made the, the same kind of announcements. I mean, it's happening all over the world. I think there's concern about climate, you know, climate change. There's concern about the environment. There's concern about, you know, being able to, you know, go into to electricity. So where do the oil companies stand then? So how do the oil companies, you know, pivot again, which is what they've done quite successfully from kerosene to gasoline. And today, if you look at it, 99% of hydrogen is produced from the refinement of fossil fuels. And I think it's quite interesting is from an oil company perspective, the largest producers of hydrogen worldwide, and it's a significant opportunity for hydrogen fuel cells for transportation, whether it be passenger vehicles or trucks and buses and things like that. The challenge though for hydrogen fuel cell is you need an energy source and batteries become a, it becomes essentially a hybrid between a hydrogen fuel cell with a battery to be able to provide the solution for transportation and a very clean, clean energy as well. Sodium ion presents some unique opportunity in that case because with sodium ion, you're able to, it has a very fast charging rate and you're able to, and it has a very high energy density. And so you can have a, maybe a lithium ion battery that would be 23 kilowatt hours, whereas a sodium ion battery can be eight kilowatt hours. So we can significantly reduce the size of that battery. We can reduce the weight of that battery and, and it significantly reduces the cost of that battery. So I think there's quite an opportunity for the oil companies. And I see there's a lot of interest from the oil companies to see hydrogen fuel cells and hybrid with batteries go into that, into that area for solutions. So I think if you if you look at you know kind of how we got here and where we're going, I think there's significant opportunity, you know, to pivot again. I think what people don't realize, and you see some of these politicians, you know, like AOC and some of the other ones saying, you know, no more oil and completely shut it down. I think what a lot of people don't realize is there's a lot of plastic in cars and you need you need petroleum and you need oil to be able to produce that plastic as well. So I don't see oil going away, but I certainly see that there's a unique opportunity to pivot towards hydrogen fuel cells from an energy standpoint. So it just seems it seems like there's innovation. You've mentioned that word before when we talked, the idea of constantly changing and improving on what we're doing. One of the messages I hear is that never expect anybody to be resting, that those those everybody's market is changing. And that, we, and that we can innovate and there's opportunities to cross innovate, regardless of if it's an oil and gas company or even within the you know, energy storage or just energy production. All that to be said, can you give us an idea, you know, when we hear about what are batteries like, what is their role specifically in the world of like a, a wind farm or a solar, solar application? We hear those and we're, they're kind of ubiquitous to us in terms of what they actually mean functionally. What roles do, does a battery actually play or battery systems play in those applications? 
Well, I think, you know, what a lot of people mix up is solar with storage, for example. You know, the sun doesn't shine all day. So, you know, when the sun is there, we always say, right, when it, when it rains, you put out the barrel to collect the rain, right? And I think it's the same thing. You're you're able to use the electricity when the sun's out or when it's windy outside for wind, but you need to be able to store the electricity as well because, you know, if it's when it's at night or when you need it and it's not windy out, you want to be able to have that electricity available to you when you need it. And and that's where storage comes in. We call it energy storage. And if you look in Australia, for example, right now, it's the most expensive electricity market in the world. Average consumer pays about $1,400 a quarter for electricity, even with having photovoltaic. It's been the highest penetration in photovoltaic from consumers worldwide. About 25% of residential homes will have some sort of photovoltaic. And there's been a lot of investment in that, in that infrastructure. However, what they haven't invested into is storage and battery storage. And you're seeing a big push now to, for the next level of investment is to go into, into battery storage. What you're able to do then is be able to, you know, and there's been a lot of incentives to be able to use the electricity as a bankable asset. You know, for example, we have some some large, you know, telco companies or some some grid type companies that don't want to just use batteries as backup power when when the electricity is not available. They want to be able to use it as a bankable asset, for example, and charge their fleet, fleet of trucks as well. And I think you're seeing that more and more is that, you know, not only can you take the electricity from solar or wind and power your house, but you can also use it to power your car. And you can also use it from your car to power your house. And storage is what enables us to do it. It's it's how do you move it from one place to the next? And batteries essentially provide that service. So one of the things you talked, you mentioned earlier, and I know we don't want to we talked about resources and we don't want to create a us versus them or, you know, good guy, bad guy kind of situation. Can you extrapolate a little bit out on the sodium versus lithium you know, resource, resourcefulness, I guess you could say? Yeah, I think if we, again, maybe a little bit of historical perspective here a little bit. I think what's interesting is most of the battery technology, like a lot of other technologies in the world have been developed in Europe or the U.S., are really commercialized abroad. And batteries are no different. And if you take a look at the, really the first battery technology was developed by Professor John Goodenough, an American who was at Oxford University. He developed a technology called lithium cobalt oxide, LCO is what we would call it. And actually the founder, co-founder and executive chairman of Ferrati and Chris Wright was responsible at the time for licensing that technology, this lithium cobalt oxide technology from John Goodenough in Oxford into the market. And in the beginning, nobody really, you know, nobody really knew what to do with it, right? It was a new technology. It was a rechargeable battery. And so ultimately, he licensed it to a, to a number of companies in Asia, and probably the most famous one was Sony. And the first use of that technology was in the Sony camcorder. And you probably still have some of those in your bottom drawer at home like I do from, from when my kids were growing up. We you know, put them in those little charging packs. And, and that was really the first use of rechargeable batteries. You know, Otherwise, you, had a, you just take your batteries out and buy a new pack of batteries and put them in. And rechargeable batteries made, made a lot of sense environmentally and you know, from a consumer standpoint as well. But what happened was the original IP was developed in the late 70s. And the first products came in the market in the in the early 90s. Sony was very, you know, very Japanese in this way. And they, they actually built a manufacturing line, qualified the technology, and then took a license. So quite an investment to validate it before they actually took the license to commercialize the products. 
the challenge happened was by the time the products came on the market, the patent barriers fell fairly quickly. Competition came into the market, primarily in, in Asia, and you know prices came down. China entered the market really with an end-to-end strategy, whereas they built factories to manufacture the cells, they incentivized consumers to create demand to fill the factories, and then and then really you know controlled the material supply chain. So you have cobalt, which is controlled by Congos, and China really has invested heavily in that. They control seventy-two percent of the the world refinement of cobalt. They have sixty-five percent of the world's graphite. They have 30 times the lithium reserves compared to the U.S. So, you know, if you want batteries and even if you want to manufacture lithium ion yourself, and we're talking primarily, you know, these kinds of rechargeable battery technologies, then China's really controls that supply chain. So I think it's quite interesting. And what's happened now is that it's kind of gone, you know, over the wall. I mean, so there was the original NMC developed by Argonne. You had LFP, University of Texas, where John Goodenough went later. So NMC has been used in Tesla's. LFP technology is probably the most common one in, in energy storage. These all came out of the U.S. But today they're dominated by South Korea, Japan, and China in terms of manufacturing. A large percentage of, you know, the quality in a battery comes from manufacturing know-how and manufacturing expertise. And South Korea, Japan, China are really, really good at that. The other part about the, why are the materials so important, 80% of the cost of a cell is the materials. And so, you know, even if you want to manufacture in the U.S. or you want to manufacture in Europe or somewhere else, you know, that is still controlled by China in terms of the material supply chain. So why is that important? I think... What's happened is, and, you know, there's essentially, we've been dependent on oil, right? And now if we want to clean up the environment, and a case I always use is India, for example. India is very similar in size to China in terms of population. It's the largest importer of oil worldwide by far. And of the 30 most polluted cities in the world, 22 are in India. And so India has a serious, you know, challenges ahead of them, and they need to clean up the environment. They need to reduce the dependence on oil from the Middle East. And so how do you do that? You go towards renewable energy, right? It's, it's clear you have to move into that direction. By doing that, then they become dependent on China. So you go away from dependence on the Middle East to dependence on China. So what we're talking about here is really energy security. And I think this is quite an interesting thing. I mean, oil has been a geopolitical, you know, wars have been started over oil. And as we move into energy now, and I think it's quite interesting, I think in, in principle, there's an arms race going on for energy dependence or dominance right now worldwide. And I, I think it's quite, it's quite interesting on that from energy security, we're talking about national security, talking about economic security, and you're talking about environmental security. And I think it's a very important point. If you look what's happening today, many of the companies in Asia are really going over the wall, and China in particular, building factories in Germany, building factories in India, and building from factories in other, in other areas. But the material supply chain is, and, and everything is really dominated and controlled by those Asian companies. And, and I think that's worked fine, fine up to now. But if you look towards the future, because we're really just getting started we're just starting to use energy storage. We're just starting. In 2019, Tesla sold 367,000 cars. Volkswagen sold 11 million cars. So we're still at the very early stage, a lot of hype. But, you know, the stage is really early. So energy security becomes really, really important. What it reminds me, if I think about, you know, from the U.S. perspective, 
you know, growing up as a kid, I was born in the in the sixties, and you know, put a man on the moon in the space race because the Russians were beating the Americans, and and Kennedy got the whole country behind putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade in the sixties, and was successful and achieved it, and you know, there was great innovation, there was a lot of national pride in doing that, and but then over time we kind of gave up on it, and you know, years later, not that long ago, within the last couple of years, the U.S. had to pay Russia to put an astronaut on the International Space Station because the U.S. didn't have that capability. And what essentially the U.S. did was they outsourced space exploration to other countries, and they abdicated that towards, towards other countries. And, and I think, you know, that's something that you would, you know, be wise to avoid in terms of energy security. You don't want to outsource your energy security. And I think, so what does that mean? So how do you take control of it? I think sodium ion goes beyond lithium. It's a technology that today performs in terms of energy density as good as lithium iron phosphate. It doesn't have the cycle life yet. It has quite good cycle life, very competitive cycle life to go into the market. That will continue to improve. Unfortunately, you cannot hurry up cycle life. It just takes time to run it and discharge it and charge it and discharge it and to run through those cycles. We're over 3,000 cycles now for sodium ion technology. So in residential energy storage, that's 10 plus years. So it's quite competitive and compelling in, in that respect. It doesn't rely on the material supply chain from those expensive raw materials that are controlled by China. It's more sustainable. It's an environmentally friendly technology. It's a safer technology because we use, well, there's a little bit of the technology is we don't use a graphite anode. We use a hard carbon anode and the hard carbon anode enables us to have a broader range of electrolytes. So we're able to use a much more low volatility, high flashpoint electrolyte, which enables us to have, you know, much more thermal stability. And that electrolyte cannot be used with graphite or with lithium ion. We don't use any copper our electrodes are both aluminum, which is really low cost, and it's also more stable because typically what happens in lithium-ion batteries, if under very cold temperatures or overcharging, the chemistry can become unstable, interact with the copper, and cause fires, and they propagate quite quickly where sodium-ion doesn't propagate in the same way. So also with the zero-volt capability of being able to discharge those you know, for installation, maintenance, it gives you a huge number of advantages from that respect. So it gives you sustainability, it gives you energy security, it gives you high performance, and it gives you low cost. Well, James, quite a bit to think about. This time always goes by way too quick, but we thank you so much for providing these talking points and really giving us something to think about, I think. Yeah, thanks, James. I always enjoy talking to you. The history lessons are one of my favorite parts, but greatly enjoyed it. I'm glad you were able to come on. Good. Very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And yeah, look forward to staying in touch. All right, guys. Yes, sir. Thank you. And with that, that'll take care of the talking point segment. Stay tuned. After the break, we'll have our case study. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. Today, 
Eric, this is one of those that kind of came out of left field, but I'm really, really super excited about talking about this one. We're going to talk to Top Coder, the company, and we're going to talk about their top, kind of a little bit of their origin story, but a big part of their origin story and their continued 20-year story is this Top Coder Open that they do. And so we're going to bring on Clint Bonner, who is their vice president of marketing, and have him come on the podcast. Very excited about this one. I think the open, it's just a really cool story and I'm waiting to dive into it. It's going to be great. Yes, sir. So as we get started, before we bring Clint on, we're going to tell you a little bit about him. He's the, like, like I mentioned, he's the vice president there at TopCoder. He's a New York native. He's a crowdsourcing subject matter expert, which we'll dive into a little bit more. He's a big, big proponent and fan of open innovation. He's an author. He's a fellow podcaster. He does keynote speaking engagements on these subjects, technology leader, and he's a Seattle Seahawks fan as well. The podcast that he does host is called Upriser. We'll put show notes. We'll put a link in the show notes to check that out. It's a great, great pod for the dive into these subjects. A graduate of the University of Connecticut, and he's been in the open innovation area for over a decade. And so with that, Clint, thanks for coming on the show and talking to us about Top Coder. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here and a lovely introduction. Thank you for doing the, the, good, the good bio research. It makes me, makes me feel proud. That is the idea. That is it. So as we get started, so help us set the stage a little bit for us, Clint, around the origin story. Like I said, this is in the 2020 was the 20th anniversary of both the Top Coder Open and the creation of Top Coder as a company. Can you take us back into the first beginning, the origin story of how did Top Coder get started? What is it? And then how did this idea of this Top Coder Open get started? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a cool one. So I appreciate the chance to tell it to the whole audience there. So you know, the what is it I think is foundational and then a little bit of the origin story. So, but Top Coder itself, it's a global community of now over 1.6 million like passionate technologists. We're talking, you know, designers, developers, like, you know, hardcore data scientists, real lovable geeks who know their stuff. And we built a technology platform that allows enterprises and really companies of all sizes, but we cater to the enterprise to tap those technologists on demand. So the same way you would stream on Hulu and stream on Netflix, well, you know that the talent economy has now allowed, or crowdsourcing, has now allowed for us to offer that to the market. So you've got brilliant people across the globe. It really opens up opportunity for so many more millions and eventually billions of people. And it really opens up opportunities for what are millions and then eventually billions of people just to do work in a brand new way. So you got passionate people who have excess capacity and the smarts, and you got companies that just in the enterprise space that need these skills. So it's beyond matchmaking. It's not just matchmaking. It's a platform to actually get the work done and 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 do it do it in a way that enterprises feel it's secure. And it's great for, frankly, the talent. They get opportunities to come do work for the institutions like NASA, like to go work on stuff for like the International Space Station. And they could be anywhere in the globe. And and that's that's why it's so cool. So that's what Top Coder is in like an emotional nutshell. And the the origin story I could give quickly is the founders of Topcoder, they sold their traditional software company back in like 1999. So if you listen back and you hear the, the NASDAQ bubble burst, right, at 1999, that's kind of when they sold their initial software company. And they just grew it to a point where they were like, hey, we're so locked. We're like landlocked into the Northeast. It was, you know, like Boston, basically a Boston-based entity. And they're like, we're out of talent. Like we can't, basically, if you could type the word Java, you'd get a job there. And that's that's not a good coder. So the owners of that company, they took their they took their winnings, if you will, 
and they wanted to start something brand new. So the founder was a huge chess player, you know, avid chess player. So he really loved that the chess, I think it's called the ELO rating system, where it was super fair, super transparent. And you also knew that if somebody was like ranked, let's say like two, you know, two tiers above you, you could basically bet your bottom dollar. They'd probably whip your butt you know, 99 times out of 100 in a game of chess because it was so reputable and it meant something. It, it had weight to it. It really meant a lot to the chess players to get that rating. So he created a software system and a platform and a community that used the same mechanics that really brought in early gamification, rating systems, you know, and at the core of it, peer-to-peer -peer competitions and challenges to really kind of evoke, you know, I think some natural emotions in humans to come, to come and do some really cool work. So, but that was all the way back in 2001, right? So this is our 20th year that we just started at Top Coder. So it's been an awesome journey. We've learned a lot. We were, I would call it rabidly early, but that's the origin story. And that's kind of what, but we exist because we could help provide opportunity for people all across the globe. It's not like everybody gets a trophy. This is not participation trophies for all. You got to come do the work. You got to be good. But the opportunity can be distributed now. And we think that's a great, great advancement. Hmm. Yeah. So it seems like there was a chance to, to fill that gap between all those different people that had these skill sets or the opportunity to develop those skill sets. And you all gave them an avenue to explore where they could apply that into different areas, all the way up from NASA down to other applications. That's amazing. So as you move the clock forward, you come into 2020, 20 years, every year you're doing this event. Tell us a little bit about how this year, the anniversary year, what happened this year with the Open that you expected and what's one thing you didn't expect to happen this year? Yeah, obviously tumultuous year in many regards for most people across the globe and including our community members, including our business. And so TCO, which is Top Cutter Open, Think of that. So we had this community and we're constantly running workouts to the community. And then throughout the year, we're like digitizing a point system. And then we're inviting in like our best of our best of our best. Think of like Top Gun, but instead of like, you know, cool F-16s and aviators and volleyball games, it's just your, your best and brightest and most lovable geeks who are your best folks. And we literally will fly them in to the States and we'll host like a mega tournament, you know, the big Ed McMahon checks and, and, and the lighting and the rock music. And we treat them like rock stars. So we have these different disciplines out there. And at the Top Cutter Open, they again compete with like the, the pool of the best. And then we crown Top Coder champion. So you have your best algorithmists squaring off, your best UX designers, your best QA engineers doing like live bug hunts and things like that. So it's really fun. And we do it for the community. We do it to celebrate them and to also showcase, really showcase their brilliance off to, off to our customers who are there just kind of in, in awe. So we've been doing that now for 20 years, which is kind of cool. So the company started in 01 and our very first Top Coder Open was 2001. Hitting that fast forward button, yeah, 2020, I would say, you know, it's the elephant in the room to say we always did it live. It was always face-to-face -face, and then we we're having beers and drinking wine with people from across the globe and hugs and, and everything else, everything we miss right now, right? So the pandemic is it's too hard, too easy and too hard to ignore how much that changed what TCO had to evolve into. That was the big change this year. So one of the biggest hurdles this year that came up with it was just was the fact of like, you know, making all of that virtual, which I know seems like, well, that's obvious, but but this was a this was a lot because you're you're really 
when you bring people to a certain geolocation, cool, like all the things of like different time zones and all that stuff, that doesn't matter. You're all sitting, you know, you're sitting somewhere. In fact, in, in 2019, we did this in Houston. So TCO 19 was in Houston and it was awesome, huge success. But so for, for TCO 20, it being globally distributed, we had to, you know, rethink it for a virtual setting. So instead of it being like two and a half to three days of kind of white hot competition, we actually spread it out amongst 10 days and did a lot of, it was all virtual, but did them in like different pockets to really help different people from different time zones be able to participate in just in ways that they wouldn't be able to before. So we had to take the the lemons and make the best lemonade we possibly could out of it. And I feel like we did quite a nice job because at the end of it, we had greater, much greater virtual participation. Many more people were able to be part of it, see the keynotes, you know, see platform demos, watch live algorithm competitions on Twitch, you know, the streams going bananas. That was bigger than ever, but there were a lot of hurdles and lumps that we had to learn real quickly on how to pull this thing off uh, elegantly. It sounds like you did. And so kind of fast forward a little bit. So obviously the Top Coder Open is, as you mentioned from your founders, his passion is respect for these, you know, these competitions, this chess-like tournament where software or these guys and gals come from all over the world, all over the place, come in here. The open is basically a medium for them to do that. So tell us a little about this year's event, which you just got done concluding with and tell us how, how did this year's, after all that planning, all those things, what, what was it like this year? So, you know, in in many ways you missed what you knew, you missed what you knew you would miss. Like that's just, you miss the human element and that's that's the facts and that's not gonna that's not gonna change until we could all hop on planes and again you know huddle around a, a beer or a pool table after the competitions are over so you miss that because the live setting of the tournaments are just something truly special because while these people are competing they're also like best friends like they know each other well they see each other sometimes multiple times a year sometimes TCO is the only time they see each other and again it's this is not just this, these are not cutthroat people Yes, they want to compete. Yes, they want to win. They want to be the best. And then when it's kind of pencils down, it the knowledge share is tremendous and how much they will share with each other and talk about their techniques or why they approached a certain really tough problem the way they approached it. So not having that, you know, face-to-face dynamic. And again, we're a virtual company. We preach the ability to use virtual talent. And yet we love this TCO because it brings it does bring humans together in a way that only face to face can and with that the other the other elements that were really outstanding were just for us again there was there was so much more global global participation so we had 90 tco participants who were the actual top coder open members typically years past we had had about 100 or 110 that we would fly in but we had 26 countries represented in the tco tournaments themselves but again we had I think it was something like 92,000 streams over Twitch and Facebook just in, you know, for like the algorithm final. So I have to go look at the exact math, but just a much larger global participation who could watch this and come and watch some of the best of the best do their thing. Mm. So it seems like you know, one of the things we'd like to focus in on is how does this, so how does all this apply to the ESG principles? And it seems to me that, you know, there's obviously some, some kudos to go on the governance and leadership side, but you were just alluding to, and I'd really like you to dive a little bit deeper into the social side that we, yes, there was a chance to kind of collaborate on, you know, skill sets and, and values around that area, but it seems like maybe you can elaborate on this if the, to whatever degree, but 
the social side about, you know, different people and diversity and people from all over the world. And what's that like to sit next to somebody who may be from Bangladesh, next to somebody who's from Texas, next to somebody who's from Ecuador or whatnot. Can you speak a little bit about what it's like, what you've seen happen over the years in regards to that type of social impact? Yeah. I mean, so speaking as, as from, from an American point of view, it's beautiful, right? It's, it's beautifully eye-opening to be there year after year and just literally see just so many representatives from around around the globe come together with a centralized passion. And like that's what this is, really is a passionate community. And even though they have different hyper-specialized skills and we really focus in some different areas of technology, at the end of the day, they're all kind of, you know, the gravitational pull is is technology. And also you know, there's, there's good female representation. You know, do we want the numbers to always be higher? Of course we do, but we have, you know, we have female finalists from around the globe and we have a nice span of also, you know, age groups. There are some, you know, we started in 2001. So we've got some top coder folks coming back in who are like coming up, you know, they, they've been to 10 or 12 or 14 different top coder opens alongside you know, basically a kid who's 18 years old, who's a, who's a quote unquote rookie to the top quarter open scene. So you got this, you got this juxtaposition of, of different, of different generations because it's spanned that long now. And again, it's all centered in the, in the learning. And also, you know, the, the opportunity is legitimate with the, the sponsors that come into top quarter open and also the, the companies that just work with us throughout the year on regular projects that, that are not tied to top code or open. Again, it's like the social and economic opportunity is so abundant. And, and this is not just a top coder thing. This is gig economy. This is platforms that, that distribute opportunity, top coder being one of them. It is so often I'll sit down for lunch with someone at top coder open. And they're like, they're like, Hey, you, you don't understand. Like I just put a, a new down payment on my house. Like, and this was never something that was in my brain or I was able to get, some of them are just like, you know, some of them are, are younger and they're like, they're like, dude, look at my new sports car. Like, you know, they're, they're showing off like a beautiful sports car that they're rocking halfway around the globe and they're, they're living like a rock star. And so maybe it's something that they just want to go after. That's like, that's the thing they want. Or it's something like, Hey, I was able to really improve our, our, my lifestyle because of the, the vehicle of the gig economy and crowdsourcing. And every single year we're talking, sometimes also it's like, I've had single, I've sat down with single mothers at Top Coder Open who are like, when you guys opened your quality assurance track and, and, she, and this one woman from India became like a really, really solid, like bug hunter and QA solver for us. She's like, my ability to provide for my family as a single mom in India, who is now working distributed, working remote, which is kind of unheard of. You know, this is pre-pandemic. We're talking about life-changing things. And that's not just a pat on the back for top coder. That is just the philosophy of work can be distributed. So why not put the put the pedal to the metal and figure out the way to do that? Because it's good. You know, it is good for all sides when that happens. Clint, I love the story. I mean, I grew up playing sports. I'm hyper competitive. I have this vision. I can't wait to go to Top Coder Open when it's back live again. And I had this vision of being in a stadium and people wearing t-shirts and bug hunting and there's cheerleaders and it's awesome. So I, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of that. But I do want to take a step back and talk a little bit about maybe put a little bit more meat on the bones around crowdsourcing. You said something earlier, which I think is important. You've got people with excess capacity. You've got these super talented technologists. You've got, they've got excess capacity. 
But Topcoder is more than a matchmaking service, right? You, you guys actually help execute getting the work done. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, I love the open, but talk a little bit more about how Topcoder interfaces with its clients, how it connects these superstars in the technology field and helps you know, your industry customers execute on their technology needs. Sure. Thank you. And it's a bit nuanced and, and perhaps a bit wonky. However, if you're kind of vibing on what this is, then this is it's incredibly important to, to get into this stuff because this is how you'll actually understand it, which is why I love podcasts in general and, you know, longer form discussions that allow for for this kind of stuff. So I appreciate it. The biggest thing is there's no magic bullet. There's no panacea out there. There's no like, hey, magic crowd, come and, you know, come and do this. You know, hey, he, here's a super complicated technology algorithm that we need an interface for that's got to call to some, you know, IoT technologies in the field. And then we got to visualize it through this iPad app. And magic, magic crowd, come, come assemble this for us. Do all these pieces and do them elegantly and, and then get them to market. That's not how things actually work, right? So Topcoder has focused, especially on the enterprise side, with two things. Building the platform that could host all these conversations, that could host technology conversations, that, that can allow for knowledge share to happen. Because you know, at the end of the day, Topcoder still has to get the, the domain and get the, get the problem statements and have, have what are really traditional technology conversations to say, what are you trying to accomplish here? What are you trying to get done? And then what some of our secret sauce is taking the work and then breaking the elements down into smaller components of work so that we can allow specialists to kind of stream in and out and do the stuff they're really good at or the stuff they want to go learn and, and go get good at. So that's kind of part of what we do is from a, a managed experience, part of the platform is we have traditional conversations we take the work, we break it into nodes, and then we're writing the specifications with, with the help of our customers, but then they're going out on the platform and then people with the skills who we know are verified in those skill sets because we're tracking their work on platform, they're coming in and streaming in and self-selecting into the work they want to do, which really flips the script. Again, about a back to opportunity. It's one thing to say, Here's a paycheck. Go bang out this widget for 40 hours. And then and when you're done, here's another widget. Go bang that out for 40 hours. You lose the passion. There's no, there's there's nothing driving that individual to like make that better. However, in our world and in, in crowdsourcing mechanisms, especially in the one that we run, it's the self-selection mechanism where people on the other side can see, when I say the other side, the talent, they could look at what's available to them and they could hop into work that really peaks them or they can hop into work because because it is it's work for let's say T-Mobile who's a public customer of ours and I mentioned NASA before right so there's there's these different gravitational pulls that allow the talent to say yes that's the kind of work I want to spend my time on and they'll come in and do do that work and again there we know they're good so when we talk about crowdsourcing it's not about this magic crowd make this happen it, there is nuance there's there's a lot of thought and there's a lot of organization around how do you put the right levels of work out so that you get the right you know the right outputs back from these geniuses and again because we were early we took a lot of lumps we didn't get this right from day 1 and we're still learning literally every single day and with that that's what we focus on that's how we're able to kind of cater it and really make it happen for enterprise customers i want to Follow up a little bit on that. You talk about the passion of the the technologists, and I'm going to talk about a little bit how that intersects with the economics 
for your customers, right? And obviously we come from the oil and gas industry. We talk about energy we, and what's happened over the last handful of years in the energy space, whether it be COVID driven, whether it be, you know, driven by, you know, you know, kind of anti-oil and gas type sentiment that's running through the investor community now, et cetera. You're seeing the energy business have to really become hyper-focused on profitability and cash flow generation and doing things much more efficiently and effectively. And I guess in my mind, which, which could be wrong, you, you get this idea, all right, do we hire a bunch of technologists to come in on staff to tackle, tackle these technology problems and they kind of get stuck in our little universe and there's no knowledge sharing and there's no passion, to go back to your word earlier. But I want to talk a little bit about just your, your, your current personal view on that intersection between passion and economics and how that works for your customers and, and how they can save money and get, I think, end up with probably a better product at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think the biggest economic lever for the customer standpoint is because you're getting passionate people to work that, and again, they're, they're verified, they're going to they're, they're gonna do good work. And, and if, if they happen to swing and miss, well, guess what? We fire the work back out there and we do it again. But the biggest, I think, condenser, if you will, which really saves the biggest chunk of money over time is the fact is, is the speed factor. It's the ability to start so much faster. So if you could condense, if you could condense the starting point of your projects from let's say, let's say it's you know it's a, it's a large complicated algorithm, upstream algorithm, and then and then again you want to visualize that and throw throw some nice visualizations against it and, and put it on a some sort of a dashboard for folks to sift through with different different persona that want to look at look at the data. Cool, probably rather complicated. Traditionally, you might spend let's say three or six months to bring in consultants to then generate, which is like oodles and oodles of, of paperwork, right? To say, oh, this is what it's going to do. This is what it's going to look like. In our world, we kind of really flip the funnel and say, take the idea, take what you want to start with, and let's immediately get some of the stuff out to the crowd. Like what can go out to the crowd right away? Well, like technical ideation, things that like, we don't know exactly how we're going to build this. Why don't you tell us, given our, we know we, we know the mountain we want to climb, we don't know the path yet. Cool. Let's start with technical ideation. Let's let geniuses across the globe get their hands dirty in what you're trying to accomplish and come back with like a technical roadmap of how they would build it and why they would make technology choices based on what you're telling them are your constraints. You know, really technical discussions, but instead of spending six weeks, six months doing that, let's do that in 10 days. Let's time box that and do it in 10 days. And let's let's take a a 12-day span and let's go get, you know, eight hardcore UX designers blasting out UX interfaces for that dashboard. And actually, let's start doing those in parallel. So the collapsing of the of the time and then the combination of you got really skilled people who want to go do those elements because they're pumped to go do them because it just peaks them and the collapsing of the, the time to start and then things being really condensed along the SDLC, the life cycle, you just get to market you know, so much faster. So even though the oil and gas industry is getting beat down, we're serving three right now, three major oil and gas energy companies in the Houston area. I can't can't name names. One of them ran 55 challenges in 2020. They had over, let me see real quick. They had over 3,500 unique members touching their work in 2020 alone. This is an you know, incredible down year. And this is digital oil field applications, upstream exploration, AI work. We're talking heavy set, high technology work. And yet they ran 55 challenges within 2020, tremendous amount of productivity. So at the end of the day to say, hey, what was the cost of those th that stuff? 
maybe it costs the same, if you will. However, instead of that taking three to five years to get done, it was done in nine to 12 months. And, and that's those savings are legitimate because then the products are out at market and they're either making money or they got some some bottom line savings because of it. So, so Clint, I'd love to touch base on it. Change gears just a tad. So today I was talking to my friend, Amy Mifflin, and she's an ESG consultant. And one of the things that she'd mentioned was cybersecurity is becoming more and more prominent and becoming considered part of that ESG metric and part of that ESG reporting. At the same time, when I when we start thinking about cybersecurity, we start thinking about you know coding and, and crowd, you know, software programming. At my age, I remember I, you know, we had computers when I was a kid, but the ability for people to have such a, an amazing understanding and ability to influence just basic code. I think there's also that concern around vulnerability. So if I'm a 75-year-old, 65-year-old C-suite level, you know, executive at at an oil and gas company, probably, you know, proficient computer-wise, but maybe, you know, the password is that that challenging aspect. And now you're asking me to take all of my programming and take it outside of the realm of my company, and they're no longer wearing my logo, and give it to a bunch of you know, young kids who, you know, who are who just to kind of throw the stereotype who aren't probably what you would typically hire, would you typically expect? Well, that that's a great barrier to break down. Do you ever get any resistance going the other way where you're worried about taking all that knowledge and sharing it outside of the company per se? Yeah. I mean, so absolutely. Right. I'd be lying if it's like, Hey, does IP and security, you know, is that something that just doesn't come up? No, it comes up in every, if you're serious about using crowdsourcing and adopting like an enterprise crowdsourcing posture, then you need to be serious about how you understand, okay, how will IP be handled? What elements and which people will have accesses? Which parts of a data set are allowed to go out to a community and which parts are absolutely never to be allowed out there, right? So the short, the short answer for a, a podcast interview would be that throughout the throughout the 20 years, we've really given a lot of thought into how do we break work down? How do we atomize work? How do we make sure we have the right levers so that we can invite invite the right levels of different people into work streams that provide comfort back to you know the CISO, if you will, so that they're cool with it. Again, we're doing like some very often heavy set algorithmic work where there are proprietary data sets, and yet we're able to take that data, obfuscate it, create different types of data sets that mock what's happening, get those out to a public marketplace while keeping the real data behind the curtains, get work done, bring it back internally and take the provisional you know, algorithms and then run them against the, the real data sets and still achieve like remarkable, like extreme value outcomes you know, and then some. And that's just on the data side. It's all about the comfort level. And frankly, companies don't get there from jump street. They don't just jump right in and say, let's do the most complicated thing. Let's do the, you know, let's do something that has a lot of a lot of compliance hooks, you know, hooks and whistles to it. But the comfort level can be earned by both sides and learn to work with it. And I would say whether it's top coder or not, just the idea of going out to platforms that are talent platforms, if you're serious about it from an enterprise standpoint, you've got to dig into the security processes. Like how do you handle things like provisioning? How do you let people into certain areas and make sure others are never allowed in? And if they can't, if someone can't answer that, then probably for an enterprise, it's you know maybe not the best fit. Or you find different work that does fit it. And one other thing I would say quickly is the way, I know it was a characterization, and the way you said, hey, we're going to take all of our work and give it to the crowd. I would just challenge that mindset and say, it's not about a lift and replace where it's like, oh, the 1990s, let's take everything and throw it overseas. 
it is really more about like an all-in talent strategy where it's like, you have your FTEs, let's get them doing the highest valuable stuff they possibly can do and driving you know, tremendous domain knowledge. You're going to have traditional contractors and your third leg really ought to be on-demand, like dynamic crowds. And then figuring out how to blend those those three things together just to, to serve your business the right way, that gives you the burstability that you're going to want, like regardless of ups and downs, you're going to be faster if you have like a, a blend that's focused on, you know, right talent, right time. So, well, these things always go by too fast. And one of the things that Eric mentioned, and you and I had actually talked about it, you know, our hope next year, or I guess this year, calendar year, is to be at the next, when, when you guys do the TCO live, we want, we're going to report coming back out interview. We'd love to make a little bonus episode and do some things with the event. And we're looking forward to uh, getting a chance to kind of talk to some people on the street out there and talk to the, and talk about this wonderful event. Yeah, very much. So. Very excited to do that. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be wonderful to have you guys out there. Cause then you could see firsthand that I know a lot of the focus here is, is on ESG and that's great. And you could see firsthand the, the, the impact and, you know, and, and if that's something you guys want to do, we can set up interviews with the members and, you know, I'll even buy a t-shirt gun so we can just fire, fire off some awesome t-shirts. <laughs> yes, t-shirt guns. There you go. And then you guys can sit down face to face with them and kind of hear, hear from their point of view, because listen, I'm a kid who grew up in, on Long Island and I went to Yukon. Great. I love what I got going on. I feel blessed. There are folks coming into TopCoder and other platforms that are that are just making their life so much more, so much more, you know, rewarding from a like a socioeconomical standpoint. Like they have opportunity. And yeah, let's get you there with a microphone. You can hear it directly from them because it's gonna be more powerful than than me talking about it. Yes, sir. And I also have images of Eric's truck with a t-shirt cannon mounted in the back bed and just <laughs> driving and just shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be this, great. this podcast has been full of great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. well, speaking of great idea, the next segment, which we're going to go into here after the break, is our insight segment. And we have Richard Copsey who's coming and he's an innovation advisor for ExxonMobil. And he's going to give us a little bit more, a little bit more perspective on this subject. And with that, we'll talk to you after the break. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to the inside segment of the podcast. Eric, we just got in talking to Clint Bonner over at Topcoder about their TCO, their Topcoder Open. And now we're going to get a chance to dive a little bit deeper with Richard around some of the perspectives from a customer standpoint around this event. Yeah, you know, you could hear Clint's enthusiasm and and passion around the open. You can it's amazing to hear the things that, you know, a platform like Topcoder can accomplish. But I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, hearing from somebody at ExxonMobil says, well, this is what we've actually done with it or can do with it. This is the future and a vision that we see for it. I'm excited to have this conversation. Me too. So before we get started, so a little bit about Richard. So he's an innovation advisor at ExxonMobil and in his 20 career, 20 year career has spanned multiple industries and disciplines. He is a technology and innovation jack of all trades. He has been in the off- he's been an officer in the United States Air Force, leading infrastructure and software development teams, and was a commercial pilot in Europe. He has led multi-million dollar power distribution projects for refineries and offshore platforms, led oil and gas digital product development, and most recently, 
drove the innovation efforts for Anadarko, pioneering the use of open talent models to deliver digital solutions. He holds a bachelor's degree in information and operations management and a master's degree in data and analytics from Texas A&M. He holds an MBA from Rice and was awarded the Jones Citizen Award for leadership. And so with that intro, Rich, Richard, Rich, thanks for coming on the show. Wow. I know you're going to read the whole bio. It's impressive. Uh, I want him to know that this, we didn't just get, grab some guy off the street to come in here and give a little perspective. <laughs> and you were actually recommended by, by Clint because he knew that it's your, your time down at Darko, that you had seen this firsthand. And we talked a little bit before. Can you give us a little bit about your journey around understanding from a customer standpoint? You've been on the receiving end of this. Can I help lay out for us what, you know, when you first came across this whole idea and what it's done in terms of your perspective around this idea? Sure. I mean, I'll start by saying, you know, I was certainly a skeptic at the beginning. The CTO at Anadarko kind of said, you know, I want to, we want to prove this out. And we, we were, we'd started kind of dabbling in crowdsourcing and he, he said, you know, I want to see if, you know, if we're just using this thing wrong. I said, yeah, it's probably not us. It's probably, you know, this is like a weird gimmicky thing, right? But in reality, as I started to, to dive into it a little bit more and understand how it works, there was this kind of epiphany. And it's, you know, I went in there thinking it's a bunch of, you know, kids with you know, like Bubba Fett t-shirts sitting there in their mom's basement doing code. There's some pretty amazing individuals. And that's why I left the Top Coder open, being able to actually meet these folks. So, you know, it really changed my perspective. And this is, this is, yes, it's about doing work. It's also about really connecting to some amazing, amazing talent out there. So, so what, what was it, I guess, from an Anadarko standpoint, you just kind of mentioned a little bit about the pain point. So can you dive a little bit deeper into, like, so was it a financial pain point, more or less? Or was it just, a, like you said, an efficiency thing? What was it that was really kind of, that kind of drove that, this and this need? But really, it came down to the fact that, we, you know, we had a lot of fantastic in, individuals at Anadarko. And so it wasn't a matter of, do we have the skills and the talent to get this stuff done? It was like, we had this pile of work that had to get done. And we just, there was just not enough time in the day to do it. And so actually one of the drilling engineer at Anadarko was actually using crowdsourcing in his you know, personal life. He used it to create a children's book. I think it was about Harvey or something. Hmm. And he brought that up and said, hey, you know, what about something like this? And so, you know, being open-minded enough, they kind of said, let's, let's, Try it. Why not? Let's see see what happens. And so that's kind of the pain point that that kind of birthed this at Anadarko was really not about oh you know we're in financial in dire straits. No, it was more about I don't want to hire fifty more data scientists. Is there a way for us to do this you know efficiently and get more done? Right. And, and I think you know Clint mentioned a couple things that really kind of resonated with me. In his specific example, you know, you talked about the one set of projects that had had 35 unique kind of top coder members that had actually touched their products inside of 12 months. And, and I think one of the takeaways was there's this massive speed advantage. And then to what you were just talking about at Anadarko, there's this productivity advantage. There's only so many hours in a day. Can we tap into a significant additional resource model that can help us overcome some of that? And so, I mean, just expand a little bit on that a little bit more. When you, when you think about what Anadarko accomplished, and we don't have to talk about specific things, but when we think about what Anadarko accomplished, I mean, how much was, you know, how much was being poured in from the crowdsourcing side of it? Well, so I like the statistic because when we talked about that epiphany moment, for me, it was when I saw the number of unique individuals that were working on my stuff because I had a very small team. So having a small team, but then getting that kind of realization that I had over 5,000 unique individuals that had worked on the, the projects that we were delivering, that's when my eyes kind of opened up really wide. And I thought, this is amazing because, you know, 
that was you know, more than the population of our, you know, our employee base. And, and here I was, you know, I only, it was just me and a team of three, three people. So it was pretty impressive to, to see what we were able to accomplish in such a short time. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. So I, I, think, I think that epiphany for you was probably really clear and obvious. You're like, oh, wait, this is, this is awesome. Was there resistance as you worked your way up the chain, whether it's through the CTO or other, otherwise in the C-suite, the, whether it's a security issue, whether it's a cost issue, whether it's a <laughs> who are these people issue, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. How did that play out as you kind of worked your way up to the C-suite and, and kind of getting buy-in across the top of management? So, you know, every organization has its, I heard this term, organizational molasses, where it's just hard to kind of move things through and those and our, our immune system to things that are different, right? And so no different at, at Anadarko as any organization would have these sorts of concerns. And yes, IP is one of those. And cybersecurity, of course, is one as well. I think, you know, as we embarked on that journey, it was about, you know, the proof is in the pudding, but also, you know, what's the level of risk that we're, we're willing to take on and understanding how to leverage the tool. Right? If I give you, you know, if I give you a hammer, and then you go try and use it you know, on a screw, it's not going to work because you're, it's not that the tool is at fault. It's just you're not using it right. And so being able to understand what are the appropriate types of opportunities that you can pursue going this route? How can you leverage this to augment your existing talent and workforce? I think that's very powerful. Being able to identify new talent. When we talk about cybersecurity, you know, you, you hear the story about Topcoder. It's been around for 20 years. What he, what he didn't really dive into is how many of those folks have been like lifetime members. They kind of got on onto it. You have there's there's going to be community members, and their community is like what over a million people now. Mm-hmm. You have people that come in and try it. It's just not for them, and they move on. Great. You have people that have been there like for the long haul, and they have the reputation on the line. We talked mm-hmm. about the chess players. So when I think about cybersecurity, do you really think somebody's going to have you know this master plan that I'm going to topple some you know? NASA or some other industry organization through, you know, crowdsourcing and, and trying to win a challenge. I mean, that it's, to me, seems like a really, you know, tough way to try and to do harm for an organization. But you certainly have to consider all these things. So there's, there's obviously, you know, measures in place to, to check for nefarious code and that sort of thing. IP is important. So innovation is a big part of who you are and a big part of what you look at. And it's always one of those, I think, dynamics where we talk about it. What, what drives somebody to kind of step into a certain area, step into a certain, a different perspective and why they would do that relative to a challenge. Can you talk a little bit about, as we look at companies like Anadarko or, or an ExxonMobil or, or a Shell, Schlumberger, Microsoft even, and we just think because they're big and they have all these numbers next to their name and they've been established that they somehow are omnipotent in terms of their knowledge base. So there's a little bit of a, like you said, it's a refresh. It was a rehashing of doing things, what was an old way. Can you talk about some of the, what, what do you do or how you look at the innovation and how, what are some of the steps that you take personally and what you would maybe suggest to companies to consider? It's really going to help break down some of those barriers that we have. I think don't be so quick to say no. Hmm. Right. I think, you know, I think as an industry, we're pretty risk averse. You know, all across our industry, we've got our you know bumps and bruises. But so does you know does the banking industry, and they're able to kind of approach these new ways of doing things. I think you know a lot of times we talk about crowdsourcing. It comes into an organization under the guise of innovation. I don't think that's necessarily. I think that's just the entry point. I think this is more about embracing change. I mean, if if twenty twenty has taught us anything, <laughs> it's change can happen very quickly. And 
the way that we execute and do work is changing. So the way that we innovate should also change. Again, don't say no. I think it's, it's about kind of taking that first step and testing a hypothesis. It's science, right? <laughs> Scientific. It's, you can't argue with it you if it's science, right? science, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's science. One of the things I want to follow up on, and Clint hit a lot on this, and I think there were some amazing little anecdotes he gave us, you know, single mom in India that's able to, you know, there's there's this super powerful technologist brain that's a single mom in India, and she can tap in, and that talent can come to Anadarko, it can come to ExxonMobil, it can come to places. Talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what your own personal experience was and kind of seeing you know, diversity and inclusion and, and bringing more people to the table, not only the great social impact of that, but the end results that came out of it as well, which are also home runs, I think, for the customers. So I think, you know, take, just look at our normal or existing paradigm and how we find talent today. Hmm. Just question that or keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. As I'm seeing all these different people, I started asking her, that we're working on our, our opportunities Sort of asking some more questions like, can, let me see, what kind of numbers do you have? Let me, show me the demographics. How many men? How many women? Do you have age groups? What, you know, where are they from? I, I was starting to get interested in the people part of this, trying to understand who is, who is actually helping us out. Because they're helping us be a better company and create value for our shareholders. So I want to know kind of who they are. And then, you know, coming to the Top Coder Open, it was like I'd meet somebody and they'd introduce themselves with their, their handle from the, 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 the platform. And I was like, oh my gosh, I remember you, you, know, you helped us with this algorithm to, to help you know, with you know, mud logs and OCR recognition to kind of turn that into structured data, these amazing things. Oh, look, at, you know, that, you're so-and-so. You helped us design an amazing application with an you know, amazing UX. And there's that people aspect. And then, so being able to kind of meet them firsthand and then hear their stories. Mm. Yeah, the, you know, I talked about that, the, the paradigm of how do we, how do we select talent we would probably never touch a lot of these people because the way that we we kind of scrutinize people is through a resume or their LinkedIn profile and and what are the certifications that you have. Some of these people, I mean, one of the designers, for example, I think her degrees in you know she has a master's in history or something like that. She's an amazing designer, no credentials, but her credentials are the work that she delivers in day in and day out, and and was at the at the top quarter open because she was actually. A finalist. Right? She's that good. That's not her thing, you know, by you know traditional right. means. And so accessing that, those people and it kind of changes the way you think about it. So I'm curious. You mentioned a kind of a niche area, niche application for some of these software algorithms and, and problems. To that, I, I could see somebody saying, "Hey, this sounds great, but you know, this super niche problem that we deal with, it's we're hyper focused, you have to have a lot of, you have to be a really a subject matter expert and there's not a lot of people that understand it. I'm sure you ran into a lot of that with Anadarko. Can you tell us how do you bridge the gap between the crowdsourcing group that comes in and help them understand what they're designing the UX for, what they're designing the software for so that they can kind of extrapolate the best process out of that? So I actually, I don't, <laughs> right? I think when you really, you know, boil any kind of problem down and think about it and think, Clinton kind of touched on this atomizing or distilling a problem. If you break it down, if I talk about something that is very oil and gas focused, you know, subsurface type stuff, what is it? Is it spatial analytics? Hmm. Is it physics? These are things that there are, people understand. So sometimes it's, 
it's breaking that problem and kind of separating it out into into ways that you can then you know you don't eat the elephant in one bite you you kind of break it up in little pieces so you take that same approach and you're able to solve some amazing things because you kind of do this incrementally mm. so i don't know I, th- I don't think you have to i think there will be certain areas where where i think niche expertise is required but that's more in stitching it all back together mm. and being able to have that vision to break it up send it out and then bring in what you need and if there's certain aspects of it that have to be focused within the company do it that way I mean, this, this, is, this is not about, you could per, certainly outsource everything this way. A small company could probably do that very well. I wouldn't suggest it. I think it's leveraging your in-house expertise and augmenting their existing talents and capabilities. So we talked a little bit with Clint about this. We talked a little bit about the economics and, the, and I, want, I want to expand and get your thoughts a little bit on the future as we look past the exciting year that was 2020 and we think about <laughs> going forward. You know, the oil and gas industry is now expected to be profitable, to be efficient. It can't be all growth. Cash is king. You know, can, you know, self, you know, to use our words, sustainability, right? (laughs) And when we think about crowdsourcing, when we think about the technological innovation, when you think about remote, you know, kind of remote, remote ops and all the other things that need to happen and occur for us to become hyper efficient and generate cash flow and become profitable, you know, how do you see crowdsourcing playing in that you know kind of playing in that field going forward i mean i mean would you be of the opinion if, if a company avoided it altogether they were really you know hampering themselves too much if they're going to try to compete i mean you know if you've got you know if, if the emp across the street is using it can you really get away not using it kind of deal so i would clarify you know so crowdsourcing we talk about open talent and open talent models crowdsourcing is one niche in that space. You also have the, the concept of gig work and freelance talent model, which is still open talent, right? It's, and it's more what we might be comfortable with, let's say your freelancer.com, those sorts of work, those sorts of, of platforms. So there, there are different ways of tackling a problem. To answer your question, I'd say I think you'd be at a huge disadvantage for not to not you know, take this sort of an opportunity on board because efficiency is, you know, how, how do you, you want, you want to raise capital, you want cash, well, the equation is pretty simple from an accounting perspective, right? You can either you reduce cost or you, you know, increase profitability. Something's got to give, right? On some either side of that the the equation there. So this is one way to kind of, in in a sense, do more with less. You know, leveraging the crowd approach for certain things, leveraging open talent like gig work for others. I think it kind of it can kind of bridge that gap from a cost capital efficiency perspective. Well, I was going to say, when you think about all of, and, and I've got friends that have been laid off and let go, and, and, you know, a lot of those aren't necessarily tech people, but you think about, you know, the opportunity for a lot of people with great skills, great talents to kind of plug in, in any open talent model, it would seem like it's a great way for our friends in the business, as we think about the labor pool, generally in oil and gas, that may be shrinking, but opportunities to plug back in and work in a contractor or an open talent model kind of deal. I just think, I think it's amazing. And if, if you're not looking at it, I think you're making a mistake. On both sides, right? I think right. as a, you know, on the supply side and the demand side, I think this is where I get really excited because I, when I start thinking about things a little bit more broadly, you know, you've got folks that are, let's say, trapped geographically, you know, in rural America, just as a small example. How many people have skills that would be very useful to any company that from a di- that could be leveraged digitally right Th- those boundaries of having to hire people that are within some sort of geographic radius that is no longer a constraint it shouldn't be and then to what? that same point i think the 
these certifications and that sort of thing. You know, somebody that's self-taught through Khan Academy how to be a data scientist, they can they can solve the algorithm for me. That's all that matters. Right. Well, and and you and Sean, you and I talk about this a lot. This idea of you know, when I think about diversity and inclusion, I think a lot of people have very specific thoughts about it. But for me, I always tell people, for me, it's eliminating blind spots. It's whether it's a geographic blind spot, you know, we have somebody has to be within 50 miles of our headquarters because they're going to commute in and do the work or whether it is, well, this person has a degree in history. Yeah. But do you see the design work she does? I don't care if she knows a lot about history too. That's great. I guess it's a plus, right? But this whole idea of eliminating blind spots and finding the best person for the job so that you can be the best company for all of your stakeholders. And it doesn't matter geography, it doesn't matter color, it doesn't matter absolutely, you know, any of those age, like, gender, none of, that none of that matters anymore. We're here is to find the best talent and we're going to eliminate all these blind spots and, and do the best thing for our stakeholders. So I guess in that same vein, is there a area of innovation outside of coding, if you will, supply chain? I don't, I don't I'm trying to think, I don't know, procurement may seem like an easy one to touch base on, maybe even sale. Is there some other element of a typical business application you think a, a crowdsourcing alternative might be an answer i think you know any sort of digital type of solution certainly lends itself much better to this sort of approach that being said you know cad mm-hmm. right you know designing something that's physical you know you still design it in the digital world and then make it reality and there are platforms out there so you know top quarter is one of them and they have they have a specialty and they have a fantastic coders you know in development and and QA and in data science and there are others you know you've probably heard of Kaggle there's one called GrabCAD they all have their kind of little their little niche and they have these communities and so I think it's just finding the right community to solve the problem that you're after and I think there's so many problems that we have any company not you know I think any any company can find ways to leverage this approach yeah. I don't think that there's a, you know, real barrier there. Well, that it always goes by too fast. Richard, thank you so much for uh, taking the time with some, and some, I love the insight. Yeah, that was great. I'm just looking forward to seeing more of this start to take off. I think as, as we think about all the advancements we need to make, not tapping into this resource seems like a huge mistake. So yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rich. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. And with that, thanks for listening. We'll see y'all next week. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for March 2021. This month we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, our OGGN Here and Now live event on March 4th at Churrasco's in the Memorial area of Houston, Texas, and the Texas Wildcatters Open at Black Horse Golf Club in Cypress, Texas. Next up, we have our three online events, Sarah Week from March 1st to 5th, Transformathon from March 1st to 7th, and the TAMU SBE Career Enhancement event on March 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for March. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. 
We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!